0: Wanted. Wanted for assault. (laughs) Presented in the public interest, the program that brings you for the first time on the air, a nationwide manhunt in action. The actual facts to date on A Man Wanted. From the record, hear the -the on-the-spot reports of the people involved. Real names are used, nothing is withheld, no one is protected. Here are the dramatic eyewitness accounts of A Man Wanted. Wanted for Assault and Sodomy.
1: And now, Wanted's on-the-spot investigator, Walter McGraw. Good evening.
2: Every week at this time, I take you on a nationwide manhunt for a criminal who is now at large. The actual eyewitnesses of the various phases of his life and crimes will talk directly to you, telling you their stories in their own way. Remember, they're putting themselves on the spot to give you first-hand information about a man who is wanted. Tonight, we turn Wanted Spotlight, the year 1926, to a member of New York's notorious West Side Mob, to a career criminal. There's a $1,000 reward, $1,000, for information leading to this man's arrest, so listen... These are the facts.
0: The date, October 14th, 1926. The location, Elizabeth,
3: New Jersey, at 9.15 a.m. On a crowded street at the start of the business day. The voices you hear next are those of the actual people who, through no fault of their own, are involved in the case of the career criminal. First, an 80-year-old man.
4: This is Walter H. Cole of Elizabeth, and I am speaking from the foundry of the Moore Brothers Company where I am president at Elizabethport. On my way downtown in my automobile, I noticed how bare the area was of transportation and was surprised. And looking out of the window, I saw a motorcycle man, my personal friend of many years, Jake Christman. He was still astride of his bicycle, lying flat on the ground, and the wheels were rotating with tremendous speed. He had not had time to turn off the current. I leaped out of my car to run up and turn off the current of his machine. But before I could do so, a man standing at the intersection of 6th and Elizabeth Avenue lifted his heavy revolver and fired on me. Standing abreast of him and firing up the street was his companion using a high-powered magazine rifle. Of course, I went no further. But I had an opportunity to observe what happened. Four men were at the side and rear of a mail truck with wired sides and were using a brand-new wire clipper cutter to open the lock which would open the rear doors. They succeeded, and they threw three or four bags, I am not certain which, into one of two cars which stood abreast of the truck. I, I sought to identify these cars and their faces for purposes of recollection, knowing that this was a serious thing, and I, one of them I identified as a Studebaker, and the other as a Packard with disc wheels. As soon as they had thrown the bags into one of the cars, they dashed off running over the policeman, Christmen, as they did so. Then I ran up to the intersection and found that Johnny Ants, his hand still upon his steering wheel, was dead. The bullet had entered his forehead and emerged at the rear of his skull, and the red blood ran down his face over his clean white shirt. On the other side of the truck lay a man on the ground groaning, and I ran to him, lifted his head in my arm and took out my handkerchief and wiped off his face. He was Paddy Quinn. The other car had run over his leg and had torn and worn away the trousers so that his bare leg was exposed and he was bleeding from that leg. Within three or four minutes thereafter, the police department came, my friend, Mike Tevlin, and they took possession of the situation. And from then on, I left the scene and went about
0: my business. Witness Cole was not the only one who saw the robbery of the mail truck and the murder of John Enz. Over 50 eyewitnesses were left behind the fleeing robbers. 50 eyewitnesses make a nice round number for Operation Rogues Gallery. Elizabeth, New Jersey, police went to work.
4: My name is Michael J. Tevnan. On October the 14th, 1926, I was a member of the Elizabeth Police Department assigned to the Detective Bureau. We ascertained through the medium of informants that the participants of that holdup were members of a West Side gang. We then consulted the detectives of the York Police Department. We got photographs of the West Side gang. We showed those photographs to several witnesses who saw the holdup, and many of them positively identified the photographs of Kniff, Crowley, and Kaikat. And two. Witnesses positively identify the photograph of James Joseph Sweeney.
3: James Joseph Sweeney. James Joseph Sweeney
0: was a name well known to New York police. No ordinary hoodlum, he was alleged to have good political connections. So good, in fact, that from 1919 through 1925, he was arrested 11 times on criminal charges ranging from felonies to grand larceny. He was discharged eight out of those 11 times. No, James Joseph Sweeney didn't worry about arrests. So, finding him was easy.
5: My name is Frank Brennan, Chief of Police of the City of Elizabeth. Two of the West Side mob, William Icebox Crowley and Killer Kniff, was identified. James Sweeney said he knew nothing of the mob. We dug up a picture with Icebox Crowley, Killer Kniff, and James Sweeney in the group, we have shown it to Sweeney, this picture, and Sweeney said, what of it? What
0: of it? Sweeney's lawyer went into a state of acute shock. Then he pulled hard. card. Sweeney had an
5: alibi. Certainly Sweeney couldn't have pulled Elizabeth's job. That was done at 9.15 in the morning. And Sweeney was at Sing Sing visiting a convict named Charlie Harrigan
1: at 11.30. He couldn't drive from Elizabeth to Ossining in that time. Try it on the highway. It takes three hours at least.
0: Jail officials corroborated the alibi. The alibi was good, except for one unanswered question. Could Sweeney have pulled the Elizabeth job and arrived at Ossining prior to 11.30 by driving through the back roads? The post office department tried to answer the question.
6: This is Charles E. Bishop, former post office employee. We left the scene of the hold-up at 9.16 in the morning and we arrived at Sing Sing Gate at 11.31. Incidentally, it was said during the Sweeney alibi that he stopped for coffee in uh, a lunchroom on the New York side of the Fort Lee Ferry. We wasted a half an hour there and still made the time. Therefore, I broke down Sweeney's alibi to the effect that the trip couldn't be made.
0: That split the alibi wide open. And that, together with a positive identification of two eyewitnesses, guaranteed a conviction. Sentence, the chair, or life imprisonment.
3: Because too many questions remained unanswered, the jury recommended clemency, and Sweeney was sentenced to life in the New Jersey State Pen at Trenton. For one year and nine months, Sweeney served
0: his sentence. Then new testimony was found. Two new arrests were made. Frank the Ghost Kikert and Benjamin Hass confessed their part and turned state's evidence. They fingered three other men. But when questioned about Sweeney, they said he had nothing to do with it. Now a second investigation was launched.
7: Why, Sweeney, he's innocent. He wasn't around. He had nothing to do with the job. As for the eyewitnesses who had
0: positively identified James Joseph Sweeney...
8: My name is Samuel Traubman. I made a mistake about James Sweeney. James Sweeney and Killer Kniff looked so much alike, they could have been brothers. Each had the same features, the same posture, the same eyes, the same hair, the same coloring. It was the kind of mistake anybody could have made.
0: Now James Joseph Sweeney, a free man, returned to normal, everyday life. Normal, everyday life in 1928 for a member of the West Side mob who had connections was bootlegging. Five years of such normalcy and Sweeney wound up a wealthy man. Dateline, July 7th, 1933. Do you know the name O'Connell? or what the Cabots and the Lodges are to Boston, what Tammany means to Manhattan, all that and a little bit more the O'Connells were and still are. To Albany, New York, the O'Connells are the most important family in town.
9: My name is Leo W. O'Brien, reporter for the Albany Times Union, on July 8, 1933, and was informed by my managing editor, George Williams, that he had received word that John J. O'Connell Jr., crown prince of the O'Connell dynasty in Albany, had been kidnapped. He said that he had been told the story by the head of the stereotype department at the Times Union. He asked me what I thought of it. I said, I don't believe it, because a story of that magnitude would be all over Albany by this time. He said, well, you call Ed O'Connell. That was Edward J. O'Connell, then Democratic Chairman of Albany County. So I called Mr. O'Connell, and much to my surprise, he answered the telephone. Mr. O'Connell was not particularly an early riser, and it made me a little suspicious, the fact that he was up and about at 8 o'clock in the morning. So I told him that we had this story, this report, that Johnny had been kidnapped, and he promptly denied it. So I thanked him and hung up and turned to George Williams and said, George, Mr. O'Connell denies it but I'm inclined to think that there's something to it. I think I'll take a run up to his house and talk with him. So, Mr. Williams said, go ahead, and I went up to Ed O'Connell's house, and I spoke with him for nearly an hour. At no time during our conversation would he admit that there had been a kidnapping involving his nephew. But as I was leaving, I turned to him, and I said, well, Ed, if uh, there is anything to this, I said, you have my assurance that this story will not be printed until you give the word. He said, thank you very much. Well... That response to my statement convinced me that Johnny had been kidnapped, and I went back and informed my editor, Mr. George O. Williams. This is Williams. When Mr. O'Brien came to me with a request from Mr. O'Connell to withhold the story, I decided that it would be better to save the life of Johnny than to print the story prematurely. And this was the first time in my 40 years of journalistic experience that the newspapers, and the wire services have ever cooperated
0: to the extent to hold up a story for 58 hours. 58 hours of silence while the town seethed with the unprinted story. The O'Connells waited for word, and word came. A letter. It read...
8: I'm getting the best of care, but please do whatever they ask. They want $250,000 in fives, tens, twenties, and fifties. They want you to publish in the Knickerbocker Press about a dozen racketeers' names known locally to act as go-betweens.
0: The O'Connell family took quick action. Three lists of names were published. The first list contained the names of honest citizens. The second list, some honest, some dubious. The third list contained the name of a well-known racketeer. The kidnappers accepted him.
3: The accepted name was Manny Struhl: Occupation, Racketeer. <laughs>
0: The kidnappers got in touch with contact man Struill by mail. Struhl was to collect the ransom money from the O'Connells. But when it came time to turn over that quarter of a million cash, the O'Connell family could not raise it. They tried to make a deal for less, and the answer read...
8: I have to write just what they're telling me. This is it. If you feel like kidding yourself, you're crazy. You must think we're some mugs, but you'll realize you're mistaken by the end of this week. The kid will get hell from now on. P.S. They've set Thursday night for the showdown.
3: Thursday night. Thursday
0: night, the O'Connell clan had only $40,000 of the necessary quarter of a million. Once again, through contact
7: man Manny struel, they tried to settle. The boys took the 40 grand. It was getting too hot to wait around and hang on to the O'Connell kid.
0: 24-year-old Johnny O'Connell was returned safe and sound. Now the police went to work. They had leads, but none of them paid off. They had suspects, but none of them talked. And they had one slim hope to find the place where
7: O'Connell had been kept. Young O'Connell was blindfolded all the time they kept him. He never saw his kidnappers clearly or the house where he was held, but he could describe the sound and feel of the place. This information he gave to the police, for what it was worth... (laughs) Detectives began to case two states. They searched every likely house on both sides of the Hudson River from
0: Albany to Manhattan's lower west side. They were in and out of thousands of houses looking for certain things described by O'Connell. He told them to look for a child named Antoinette, a dog named Jackie, and an intermittent buzzer in a house with seven steps the one thing O'Connell had seen out of the corner of his blindfold was a crucifix above his bed.
3: Most important, O'Connell knew from street sounds that the house was on a street that was paved half with asphalt and half with cobblestones.
0: For three years, the police tried to trace down
7: these slim clues. Three years with no results, then a break. The New York Police Department received a tip from one Mike Clancy, a convicted murderer who was hoping for clemency, that a good place to look for the gang hideout was Hoboken. Hoboken was fresh
0: territory. There, police had to start from scratch, looking for the dog named Jackie, the child Antoinette, a room with a crucifix, and a street that was paved with both asphalt and cobblestones.
5: This is William Christie, captain of police of the city of Hoboken, New Jersey. Two days after receiving the tip, I found the kidnapped house. I located a street half-surface with asphalt, and half with cobblestones. I then made a search of the neighborhood for the house, and as a result of the search, I found seven concrete steps in the rear leading into a hall, just as O'Connell stated. I also located the girl Antoinette, and Antoinette told me she had a dog named Jackie, but he died. I went upstairs, and I saw that the rooms was newly painted but the outstanding thing, the sign of the cross was still there. What do you know about that? It was still there. They couldn't paint over it. We also located the buzzer that Mr. O'Connell stated sound like the buzzer in Madison Square Garden, and that was a police horn located on the corner. When I saw all these things matched, I knew we found the house which hid Mr. O'Connell. <laughs>
0: After three years, now a definite lead on Adams Street in
7: Hoboken. Police picked up
0: certain mobsters that had been seen in that area. Hours of questioning.
7: They talked and talked plenty. One by one, each member of the kidnapped mob was identified. According to the court records.
5: Though between Manny's tool was more than just a contact man, he was one
0: of the kidnapped gang. There were others, too, members of the West Side mob. There was Harrigan, the same Charlie Harrigan who had supplied Sweeney with his Sing Sing alibi in the Elizabeth job. And a man
7: named Fisher. Frank Fisher had guarded young John O'Connell. He admitted his part in the plot, and when he confessed, he fingered one other man. James Joseph Sweeney. Fisher didn't exactly say what part Sweeney
1: had in it. He sort of hinted that Sweeney had delivered some of the go-between letters. Now the kidnappers were rounded
0: up, those who were still alive. More than half of the gang were already in the pen on other charges. All were accounted for except James Joseph Sweeney. Sweeney disappeared.
1: And he was wanted. And now, Walter McGraw.
2: At this point in the O'Connell case, wanted flyers were shipped around the country in a nationwide search for the missing man. The Federal Bureau of Investigation was called in, and they found him. Sweeney was in Los Angeles running a very profitable automobile agency and living quite well, thank you. He was taken back to New York, and he said at that time... I'll be glad to go back and face the music. I had nothing to do with the case. I knew I was under indictment, but I didn't surrender because I knew I wouldn't stand any show along with the others. Oh, I know why they put the finger on me. They were envious of my success as a bookmaker. I operated alone and was successful.
0: Returned to New York, James Joseph Sweeney pleaded not guilty to conspiracy, kidnapping, and income tax evasion.
9: My name is John T. Delaney. I was district attorney during the O'Connell kidnapping case. As far as James Sweeney was concerned, I questioned him on two or three occasions, and from my investigation, we had insufficient evidence to prosecute.
0: Even the hoodlums involved in the O'Connell kidnapping came forward of their own free will and admitted, Sweeney
7: is innocent.
8: He had nothing to do with it.
1: He didn't even have a hand in a job.
7: Sweeney's only provable offense was income tax evasion. For that, he got one year and a day in the federal pen. One year and a day later,
0: James Joseph Sweeney was free, and he returned to normal everyday life. Normal everyday life in the year 1937 for a member of the West Side Mob proved very profitable to Sweeney, and once again he got rich. Again, he had no trouble with the law.
3: Not for 12 long years. Then... Dateline, September 14th, 1949, Westchester County.
8: My name is Robert Viscomi. I'm from 107 Maple Avenue, Mont Kisco, New York. I've known Jim Sweeney for about two years. On the night of September 14th, I was in the Brass Rail in Pleasantville, New York, waiting for my brother to take me home. Jim Sweeney walked into place, and I had a drink, and I started a conversation with Jim Sweeney about some girlfriend that I've had, and he wanted to know if I had a fight with her or something. So I told him, yes, I had a fight with her and he wanted to know if I was on a bum, out drinking for the night. And I told him, no, I'm waiting for my brother to pick me up and I'm going home. About three o'clock, Jim Sweeney asked if I would drive him home. He said he wasn't feeling well enough to drive himself. So I told him, sure. So we got up to his house and he went to open the door and it was locked. He couldn't get in. So he says, well, I'm going to take you home now. I says, well, swell. So all the way down, he kept getting wise with me in the car, and I told him, just a minute, Jim. I says, let me out of the car right here. So he speeded it up, and I couldn't jump out of the car, he was going too fast. So I was going to grab him, and then I changed my mind because we'd have an accident, and both of us would wind up getting killed, and he told me, he says, "Uh, are you going to say anything? I says, I'm not going to say a word. Just let me out of the car here. I said, you go your way, and I'll go mine. He says, no, I don't trust you. So he pulled off to the side of the road, he takes this gun out and he puts it to my ribs. I told him to put the thing away. I says, what are you trying to do, kill somebody? And he says, well, he says, I'm gonna kill you. He says, you know something about me and you're gonna go back there and tell all my friends. He says, and I can't afford to have that happen. I knew he meant business and I went to grab the gun out of his hand and he fired a shot, which fired through this hand. And that hand was hurt very bad and it started painting me because I was losing blood. So then I jumped into the car after him to grab him around the neck to weaken him somehow to get the gun out of his hand i didn't know what i was doing i grabbed him with this hand that was already shot and he kicked me in the stomach and i fell backwards and he shot me through my left hand so then i remember falling out of the car turning around and then i was running across the bridge and this motor vehicle came over the hill which picked me up and believe me i appreciate that
0: Once again, James Joseph Sweeney was picked up for questioning. Judge Schmidt of the New York State Supreme Court set his bail at $15,000. Sweeney claimed he didn't have the money, so a brother who hadn't seen Sweeney in 15 years put up his home and property to help James Joseph out in collaboration with a bonding company. Sweeney was released on bail to await trial.
6: This is John Hoy, undersheriff, Westchester County. The Westchester County grand jury indicted Sweeney on the charge of assault and sodomy. Sweeney was able to obtain four adjournments, and on June 7, 1950, he was to appear in the Westchester County Courthouse at White Plains for trial. During the morning, his wife, Dorothy, called the court and advised that Sweeney was ill in bed and could not make any appearance. A reasonable time elapsed, and Sweeney did not show up in the Westchester County Court. His bail was then forfeited, and he has since been indicted for bail jumping. Sweeney is considered a most desperate criminal. He is a man who has unlimited funds at his disposal, and he further has high contacts within the underworld
0: based on the facts
5: you've heard tonight and or other pertinent material. The county of Westchester, in the name of the people of the state of New York, to any peace officer in this state, an indictment having been found on November 3, 1949, in the county court, held in and for the county of Westchester, charging James Joseph Sweeney, alias John P. Sweeney, alias Joseph Doyle, alias Jackson Dell, alias Jim Smith, on two counts, with a crime of assault, first degree, and sodomy.
0: It is not our function here to determine the guilt or innocence of a man, nor do we intend to. But according to this indictment, this formal charge by society, James Joseph Sweeney is wanted.
1: Now, Walter McGraw.
2: You can help find James Joseph Sweeney. The Daymar Agency, a bonding company, is offering a $1,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. So stand by. How can you recognize him? Listen,
6: and listen carefully. This is
5: Maynard Allen, acting warden of the Sheriff's Westchester County Jail. James Joseph Sweeney is five foot eight and one-half inches. He weighs one hundred and fifty-four pounds. He is of medium, slender build. His hair is dark brown and grey. His eyes are dark brown. He has a ruddy complexion and he may be traveling by auto with his wife, Dorothy, and two children.
1: Now back to Walter McGraw in New York.
2: If you should spot James Joseph Sweeney, do not approach him. Rather, notify your local police, then write a letter giving your name, address, and full details directly to the Daymar Agency, 150 Nassau Street, New York. That's Daymar, 150 Nassau Street, New York. Now to help you, there's one more voice to add to the sum total you've heard tonight. The voice of the
6: underworld. This guy, Sweeney, is a pure and simple crumb. He gives everybody the impression he's a big shot, a fast spender, easy with a buck. But he's the kind of a guy that'll double-cross his own brother. Sweeney lets his brother put his house up his bond and then takes a powder. This guy is still working in the past. He thinks he's got all the political connections he had before. So this swell-headed crumb thinks that with these big connections, he can do anything he pleases. So he hangs around the racetracks. He's crazy about the ponies. But if you want to grab this guy, look for some of those political connections he paid off at one time, because he thinks they owe him a favor.
2: If you have no other way of seeing a picture of James Joseph Sweeney, Go to your local post office. A poster with his picture is on the wall. Study that face.
3: James Joseph Sweeney is forty-seven years old, height five feet eight and a half inches, hair dark brown, graying, eyes dark brown, build medium slender, complexion ruddy, may be traveling with
2: wife, Dorothy, and two children. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the problem is not whether or not James Joseph Sweeney is innocent or guilty. He's a man who's been connected with the Rackets for 20 years and who is now a fugitive from justice. He may be dangerous, as dangerous as any Dillinger or Pretty Boy Floyd. He must be brought in. It's more than possible that he's right now hanging around racetracks or other gambling casinos. Once before, of course, he was found on the West Coast. However... Our information has it that he's still in the East. My personal hunch is that he'll be picked up in New Jersey. Remember, the Daymar Agency will pay up to $1,000 reward money for information leading to Sweeney's arrest. If you should see him, first call your local police. Give them full details, including your name and address. Then write the Daymar Agency at 150 Nassau Street, New York City. Write your name and address clearly and give the Damar agency the same information you gave the police. Damar is the sole judge of the person or persons who are entitled to the $1,000 reward. Now, this is Walter McGraw saying, there's no time like now to wipe out crime. <laughs>
0: Be with us again next week when you will hear the actual people give their eyewitness accounts of the brothers in crime who are wanted, wanted for the crime of confidence game.
1: All material heard tonight was factual from the record. Real names were used. The voice of the late Samuel Troubman was impersonated by his son. Tonight's report was written by P.L. Mayer. Music was directed by Morris Mamorski. The narrator was Fred Collins. Wanted was supervised for NBC by Joel Hamill and was produced and directed by Walter McGraw. Hear the sports newsreel next. Three chimes mean good times on NBC you mm.